You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bolchevich. And now, here's Jay. And good afternoon, and it's another beautiful day in the Pacific Northwest, and this is the Bo's Nose Show coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, and I'm Jay Bozovich, West Lane County Commissioner, your host, and just want to remind folks that we'd like you to like us on Facebook. Uh, go to the KRBN Internet News Talk radio page and like us there, and uh, that'll help get you notifications of upcoming shows and who my guests are, et cetera. And today we got a guest on the show, Sheriff Byron Trapp. And if you want to get in on the conversation, you can call in at 646-721-9887 and just press one and that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the conversation. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the tragedy in Las Vegas over the weekend. And, you know, our thoughts and, and prayers and and hopes for recovery and uh, condolences to the families. That was a horrible incident in Las Vegas. But it kind of really showed um, a lot about how a community responds to such a huge emergency with over 400 wounded, uh, many people scattered and, and wanting to get in contact with loved ones and finding out where they were. And then just trying to get enough vehicles to move wounded people to hospitals and, and the hospital system, pretty incredible. And, and, you know, kudos to the people that were there. There were a lot of ordinary citizens became uh, emergency response personnel just on their own. Uh, I heard an interview with a, a woman who was there with her husband and after he managed to get her underneath some metal seats, he went out and started uh, trying to, you know, uh, help treat wounded people out, out, you know, out, out from undercover, uh, trying to stop wounds from bleeding, et cetera. Uh, and he basically was just a, a he was he's an electrician by trade. It just happens to have a little bit of tra- uh, first aid training that went out there and did that. So. It's great to see ordinary people respond to those things, but I wanted Byron to come on so we could talk a little bit about uh, emergency response here in Oregon and Lane County. So Byron, welcome to the show. Thank you, thanks for having me. Thank you. So in Oregon, there's all sorts of statute and everything about how our emergency uh, management system is set up. And I was looking online and there's you know, Chapter 401 of the Oregon Revised Statutes, I think, has a lot of that information there. But basically, if you go on the Office of Emergency Management for Oregon, there's a little link that says, you know, local emergency managers. And when you get on that and get down to Lane County, it's got somebody named Linda Cook as our as our emergency manager, and then somebody named Byron Trapp, director. And then yeah. it's got sheriff of disease. <laughs> So, what is your role uh, as for uh, emergency management here in Lane County? Well, the state requires that each county shall have, and cities and other government may establish an emergency management agency that's responsible uh, uh, for the emergency management functions of the county. And so then in Lane County, in any county, the state says that the county shall have that function established. And so Lane County could have that as an independent function or under a department within the county uh, form. And in Lane County, the commissioners at some point uh, in the past have assigned that function uh, to the office of sheriff. And so uh, through the Lane Manual, that then makes the sheriff the director 
of emergency management for Lane County. And then we have, uh, since having that function assigned to the sheriff, the sheriff's office has had an employee who is called the emergency manager of Lane County. And so that is Linda Cook, who you mentioned. Yeah. And I was noticing as I looked around at other counties, uh, quite often it is the sheriff as the director uh, for many other counties. And in counties that don't have larger cities, uh, they're, that's the only emergency manager on some of those counties. I was noticing right. in Lane County, there are only two cities that have designated uh, operate emergency uh, managers and offices of emergency management. That's Eugene and Springfield. So uh, you have you have a pretty wide jurisdiction then, I guess, with the exception maybe of Eugene and Springfield when it comes to uh, who who ends up in charge in, in an emergency and has to make some of these calls about declaring an emergency, notifying the state, and all those things. That sort of falls on you for just about all of Lane County. Right, and it's uh, it's it's a very consistent with Lane County's theme of limited resource. Uh, we have the one employee within our office, Linda, who is our designated emergency manager. And and it is, especially in the throes of an emergency, it can be, uh, you know, all-consuming. And, of course, we throw in much more staff uh, during an emergency that work with Linda and coordinate all of those services through the emergency management functions and protocols. And, uh, uh, you know, so it's not during an, an emergency event. Linda's not the only person managing that emergency as the emergency manager. But in times away from emergency, uh, it has a significant amount of, uh, of uh, work, work done throughout just day-to-day -day activity with trying to coordinate emergency management plans throughout the county and through all the governments and, and provide training and manage uh, FEMA grants and all the pieces that go with it. It's a very complex program. And all of that then is certainly coordinated through the sort of the parent office of Oregon Emergency Management. And uh, so she stays uh, very busy and uh, with with field exercises from tabletops to full-scale exercises. We've done a lot of coordination with the Army Corps of Engineers over the years. I uh, have a great relationship with the local office of uh, Corps of Engineers and with the broader uh, project uh, district and, and staff. And uh, that's that's a regional from here to Portland uh, training opportunities that are often coordinated by Linda and through her with the Corps. And then not uh, not only those, but we t uh, deal with a variety of emergency scenarios that affect law enforcement, police and fire related. Generally, we did a very complex, participated in a very complex uh, active school shooter scenario a couple years ago in Elmira that involved uh, hospitals and law enforcement, schools, uh, fire service, and, and all that. So it a lot of that gets coordinated and, and organized through the uh, emergency management office as part of the ongoing training and preparation. Not to mention all of the public outreach on how to be prepared, what to do for pre-planning and preparation, and education on what to do uh, during an active emergency, what where to go for shelter, and what to plan for self-sustaining uh, levels of of emergency preparedness kits and all that kind of stuff. So there's there's just a ton of things that go with that that program, and, and we're very happy to have somebody as dedicated and committed to the, the effort as Linda has been for the sheriff's office and the county for the time she's been with us. Particular with the, the Las Vegas scenario where you have uh, mass casualties, has, has, has Lane County and, and the, uh, the hospitals, you mentioned the, the school shooting, Practices. Has there been other mass casualty uh, preparations for for that kind of an incident? Well, there's each facility, each hospital has its own mass casualty plan, and and the fire service is uh, is a partner in that in that plan as far as how to triage in the field and, and how to transport what happens at each medical facility upon receiving patients and then there's triage at the medical facilities and and so that was certainly something that was practiced and and part of the the large uh, 
uh, Elmira High School uh, full-scale exercise event, uh, but I'm not the best to speak to that specific piece because law enforcement isn't significantly hands-on in the mass casualty when it comes to medical care. I mean, we're certainly at the scene and trying to ensure safety of the scene and to preserve the evidence of any uh, criminal behavior and at the same time provide assistance in, in whatever uh, basic medical care uh, that a law enforcement officer has the training and skills to provide until relieved by more advanced uh, medical care and trained uh, fire and medical personnel to, to actually take on the care and transport of the patients. So it's, it is a coordinated effort and there are there are uh, just watching some of that training and in, in, in the exercises is is interesting to see the you know how they have established protocols about how they color code and tag and and identify people based on their triage level of of injury and care uh, identified. So it's it's complex and it's um, it's a really broad overall picture. So it's hard for each discipline to have you know, the, a lot of the broader knowledge. We have familiarity with the other programs, plans, uh, but then try to stick to our area of technical expertise. So, you know, a, the possibility for uh, an incident similar to Las Vegas isn't quite as prominent here in Lane County. Well, we don't have a lot of high-rise buildings. Uh, and right. and particular, I don't think there are any high-rise buildings close to any of our open-air uh, gathering venues. I can't think of one that overlooks the Cuthbert Theater or Austin Stadium. <laughs> right. Or you know, any of those venues. So I, 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 I don't foresee that you know, we'll see something very similar to Las Vegas. But there is always the possibility of an incident similar to what you guys practice at Elmira High School. And I also know there was a, a uh, a similar uh, exercise down at Sayusla High School not too long ago uh, right, in the summertime. Was. Yeah, um, which which was kind of funny. As much advertising as you guys did that they were, you guys were going to do that practice down there, there were still people that thought it was real and started calling the the nine one one to ask what was going on. Right. Yeah, it can be alarming, especially when it involves a vulnerable location uh, like a school uh, people are very sensitive to that so uh, yeah we we expect those calls that's why we try to make sure we inform as much as possible and then have everybody ready to receive those calls because we know we'll miss informing some people along the way and, and it's interesting because you know I, I listened to this interview with um, the, the woman who was there at the concert with her husband and they're both electricians and, and, and our own electrical contracting company they just happen to have some training from also they're into martial arts and, and actually took some first aid training. And that's what enabled him to, to help in the moment. Mm-hmm. And it kind of brings home that, 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 you know, self-preparedness for emergencies. And a lot of times the first responders are not who you think they would be. And just as, right. as you were law enforcement might provide medical aid until somebody more qualified shows up and better able to render aid because it may be you know seconds minutes you know or even longer time before somebody with a higher level of of expertise is there to relieve somebody uh, especially if there's a strong draw on resources so it kind of brings about you know some of the the training that, that, you know, through Linda Cook and through the Sheriff's Office, you guys offer uh, the general public and even uh, staff at schools. I know you guys do some work with helping schools uh, with uh, ALICE training. you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so it's uh, ALICE is just one. It's an acronym in a, without uh, grabbing my little cheat sheet to remember what it's what it, exactly it stands for. The easiest way to to speak to it is it's Alice A L I S E and it's alert lockdown inform I can't remember what C is uh and evacuate and uh but it's a, it's the run hide fight concept and that's the simplest program title out there but there's two or three programs with different names that essentially teach the same curriculum and what we have moved into in in law enforcement divs around the country is a movement from 
lockdown being the only answer to a threat to our students in a school and and just simply lock down the school with no training and and in fact instructions used to be don't do anything just move to this side of the room lock the doors turn out the lights and hope bad doesn't come here the problem with that is when an active shooter or intruder comes to that group of people whether they're little kids or college kids they're all masked in one spot their shooting accuracy is 100 percent because they have a huge target and it's all human flesh and so uh, the idea here is to prepare our students of all ages with appropriate curriculum with a whole new outlook on what to do when some har when you know a threat of harm comes to their school classrooms and campuses and that is to be prepared to to act to defend and protect themselves and so the run hide fight theory essentially says run meaning get away if you can and if you can't get away or out of the building or out of the classroom, hide, you know, lock the doors, turn out the lights, hide, barricade as best as possible. And if that doesn't work, an intruder still makes entry into the immediate location of where you are, then fight. And if you don't fight, you're more likely going to be a victim, likely a victim of death. And if you do fight, studies continually show in just individual crime victims, uh, victims of sexual assault attempts, those that fight are much more likely to avoid the assault than those who don't fight. And so it goes at all levels of being uh, threatened as uh, a circumstance of being a victim. If you fight, you're likely to, to cause your attacker to move elsewhere to a, a less difficult target. And, and then that may then allow you to now run or to hide again and for that harm to move or, or go away by the time for somebody to get there to intervene and stop that threat. So we have partnered with all law enforcement in Lane County, including law enforcement outside of Lane County, and we have taught this program in, I believe now, I think every school in Lane County, the city schools, the unincorporated rural county schools, with large groups of law enforcement officers and, and civilians alike that are trained instructors, specifically in the ALICE curriculum here in Lane County. And we have had great reception from school, uh, administrators, school faculty, and uh, now the point is to try to move the curriculum into the schools where they actually will begin instructing the student bodies uh, in these concepts. But at this point, we're, we've done, a, I think, a great job collectively uh, as law enforcement uh, in our community um, getting into all the student faculty levels at least. So if something happens in a school today, all of the faculty have had this training, this uh, new perspective, and likely will be more active and decisive in their response to a threat. Part of that training, uh, speaking to what you mentioned before, is it's uh, sometimes you're not quite sure who the first responder is. Part of that training is to let everybody know if you're a teacher at a school shooting or you're a business owner at something that happens outside your business or inside your business, you are the first responder. And you are the only person that can take care of you for those intervening, if you're in the city, four to five minutes of a police response. If you're in the county, 15 to 45 minutes of police response. And so that's something that you, we hope we can make sure everybody understands is that you can't wait for a deputy to get there or a trooper or a police officer, certainly not in rural Lane County. Um, that uh, there's a an expectation for our, our own preservation to act and to defend ourselves at whatever uh, that requires, it's, and to aid each other to safety and to medical care until those trained responders can get there for medical aid or for safety and security of, of the facility or the, the scene, uh, whether that's law enforcement or other. So um, it's... It's not a really easy conversation to have. Um, it evokes a lot of emotion, certainly in our in our school faculty, uh, and so it's it's a challenge to I think change our collective thinking as a community when it comes to these kinds of things, and to recognize we have to take a different tact in our preparedness mentality, and if we can make our schools and our business environments and our public gathering places, uh, more difficult targets or more resilient to an attack, uh, 
then it it takes away that that very weak, cowardly person's uh, comfort at going and doing something evil in one of these vulnerable locations. If they know that somebody's going to attack them right back, they're less likely to go there. And so that's part of the theory behind this kind of training, and not not only you know teaching people how to get out of the way and protect themselves, but to send a message to the those that want to cause harm in our community that it's not going to be as easy as it used to be. And it's unfortunate we have to take that perspective. We've I've grown up in this part of the country and have never had to really think about it that way uh, in years past, and none of us have, but it's it's a different time. And so that's that's the big piece, the big push in the school training. Thanks, Sean. Talking with uh, Sheriff Byron Trapp here on the Bose Nose Show, and if you want to talk to the sheriff, you can just give us a call at 646-721-9887. Again, that's 646-721-9887, and just press one, and that lets Robin know that you want to get in on the conversation. She'll get you queued up. So, you know, this kind of brings up a, a bunch of questions for me. All this this issue of of being prepared. But I also wanted to note that you actually gave this ALICE training to um, the district court staff in the Lane County Courthouse uh, because, you know, people don't often think of it. That's another place where you can get uh, an active shooter incident because there is such high emotion involved in, in court. Uh, and there are other places you may have, have given it. Is, right. Are the sheriff's office um, or anyone provide that training to, say, businesses that may be dealing with uh, you know, let's say property management businesses that deal with uh, evictions, et cetera. I, you know, is there is there that training available out there for the just the, the general public and, and private business? It is. It's just a matter of, of finding a group uh, that's willing to uh, receive the training and then making a request of, from their local law enforcement. I would say that if you live in a city, you should call that city police agency and make that request. And if that city needs assistance with resources of instructors, they'll call and, and we'll all group up together. Uh, if you're in unincorporated rural Lane County, call our office, call the sheriff's office. Uh, but it is designed, the training curriculum, that uh, regardless of what the name of it is, uh, all of the curricula are, are designed to uh, be taught to schools. I think schools was kind of the, the primary focus, but but they are easily uh, designed or designed to be easily uh, adopted into a business setting, uh, a group of business owners in a in a mall setting. Or uh, uh, we, we've uh, provided this training for school summer camps, uh, where you it's not a formal school setting; it's a summer camp uh, with you know little cabins and lodges and kids kind of here and there all over, and it's a very different setting than school but you and it has children of all ages depending on the week you go to summer camp um, and they're run by churches and so which we've also provided this for uh, religious organizations churches um, we have a completely different thought now of of uh, those areas that used to just be off limits even to the criminal mind they were off limits uh, we never saw crimes committed against a church facility or a, a church body of people. Uh, we never saw crimes committed in or against a courthouse and in a courtroom. Those were were always considered uh, very off-limits, and, and uh, they just weren't something you had to worry about. Well, now we have magnetometers outside of our courtrooms to make sure people aren't taking hard weapons, guns, and knives into courtrooms. Around the country, you see shootings and stabbings and assaults occurring in courtrooms from uh, witnesses and, and defendants and plaintiffs at the in the in the, in the uh, seating section, all the way up to you know judicial staff being assaulted. So uh, we see shootings on church campuses and church facilities, and and so there's nothing that's off limits, and that's why this training and this curriculum is is designed to sort of hit everything out there that uh, could be a target at any level and have these concepts in place. The idea being we once we've had this training and understand the run-hide-fight concept, you can do that anywhere you are. Recognize your environment, 
identify where to run to should something happen, or how can you barricade and make yourself safe in this location if you can't get out, and then understand and, and have for some forethought and pre-planning of what am I going to do, how hard am I going to fight, what can I do to fight, what can I do to protect myself, and and have that difficult thought process before you're forced into it and you have that, that fight-or-flight reaction that you freeze because you haven't thought of either. Yeah, and it, it really does apply, you know, if you've taken the training, you know, as, as a teacher in a school or as prosecutor in, in, the, in a district court building, once you have that situational awareness, it doesn't matter where you are when there turns out to be a live shooter incident, um, you now know the correct response, which is, right. you know, first get away and hide secondary. And, you know, one of the things they do in these exercises, they have people try and um, in the moment figure out how to bar doors, like using belts and, and other things to try and jam under the door jam, et cetera, to try and uh, figure out, make it harder to open the door into wherever you're hiding. Uh, and then also just look or, you know, what are your weapons at hand? Is it your shoes? You know, what wouldn't the feel good to have throw? The classroom flagpole <laughs> is, a, is a perfect uh, offensive weapon. It usually has a pointed top at the top of the flagpole. And, I mean, there's just a number of things you can look at that you could easily defend yourself with. Uh, bar a door by, you know, the, putting a desk through the, the loop handle so they can't pull the door open. And, they, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. There's It just takes... It takes somebody helping you initially work yourself through that thought process and begin identifying and pointing out, you know, a heavy metal swing line staplers, um, those kinds of objects to throw if somebody comes into the room in a school classroom or an office setting, uh, a computer monitor or a computer uh, hard drive, uh, the telephone. I mean, anything that you can think of, all those kind of, it just takes that, so that thought process to have thought about it first so that when something happens, you you don't have to think about it as long to to get ready to act and then follow through with it. Yeah, and it's you know, I took some home self defense courses for you know uh, handgun training, and the, the concept is exactly the same. Where my instructor taught us, you know, first thing you do is if you can get out, get out. When you hear somebody, yeah. you get out, call. Call, call the cops. You don't deal with it yourself. You can't get out if you're cornered in your house. You hide first, and and, it, and only if you're threatened do you fight. You know when when you get to the point where you actually have to, have to you know utilize your weapon and all. It, it's you know the same concept. Run, hide, fight, and it should be should be something that should be ingrained in the people as as they get in these situations. But what's interesting is the likelihood of of being involved in a live shooter situation, although we hear about it in the news a lot, it's really a lot less likely that you'll be involved in that, much more likely that you're going to be involved in some kind of natural disaster or even man-made disaster that might isolate you and your family for a period of time. Uh, and that's another role that you know, your office plays is kind of educating people and, and some of those same skill sets transfer over, you know, Knowing first aid is a good thing also during a, uh, a flood situation or a, an earthquake, tsunami situation, or hurricane, whatever. When you end up isolated, you're not going to be able to get, you know, medical treatment for an injury uh, right off. So um, right. It, it's one yeah, of those so things where some of it carries over. But really the most common way, common thing you can deal with in an emergency is is a natural disaster, not not a shooter. Absolutely. And some of the best information we have is available online. If people want to go to the Sheriff's Office webpage at the county's webpage, it's lanesheriff.org. takes you straight to the Sheriff's section of the uh, county's website. And then on the left side is a menu screen or a menu list, and you can select emergency management. And once you're in emergency management, there's a whole uh, large selection of different topics, uh, different uh, information on, on how to be prepared and informed, on how to make uh, 
your home plans and your family plans. It talks about how to be prepared with children, how to be prepared with pets, uh, how to sign up for an emergency notification system through Lane County's emergency management. If we have something happen here in Lane County, you can be uh, fairly immediately notified by a cell phone message uh, and other messaging that uh, will alert you to an, uh, an emergency occurring in our community. And these emergency management plans are addressing both, like you said, uh, the, the man-made disasters, maybe a a uh, manufacturing facility explosion and fire and we had a mill fire in Springfield a couple of years ago that that impacted the city of Springfield for a little bit there and um, certainly the neighborhood surrounding and some evacuation of, of uh, nearby buildings and streets and so it can be something like that or you know major flooding which we see usually come February we'll have some level of flooding it's almost a guarantee Mohawk Valley will see a little bit and uh, Sayuslaw uh, river area in Mapleton area usually sees a little bit from a little bit where it's uh, nuisance flooding to where it's been fairly disastrous and uh, so uh, tons of information there and certainly uh, call us if you uh, aren't finding what you're looking for have specific questions we'll have staff uh, take the time to answer those questions for you but there's a lot of information we have a lot of our information is linked through FEMA FEMA is kind of the overarching authority from the federal level down and we all comply with uh, the FEMA standards when it comes to emergency management and the ICS structure on how we organize and respond to emergencies. So FEMA is the federal level, OEM, Oregon Emergency Management is the state level, and then Lane County Emergency Management at the local level uh, is sort of the structure of how that works. So everything kind of links from here to OEM to FEMA and uh, all of the information should be consistent. One of the things to note, we used to always say, have a 72-hour kit uh, to be able to maintain without any assistance for you and your family and your pets for 72 hours. That's kind of morphed up to about a two-week window, and it kind of goes back to that active shooter training, is that you are the first responder, is that it's the same thing when a natural disaster happens. It can be, at least it's going to be 72 hours in most cases, but we're seeing in some of these disasters in the around the country that sometimes it's taking uh, more than a week and up to two weeks for people to get significant aid uh, at their home or wherever they need to sort of get relocated. So be thinking in longer terms than 72 hours up to a two week, for, certainly for food and water supply should be two weeks. And, uh, the more family members you have, uh, elderly or children or animals, uh, pets and livestock, the more complex it gets. So the more it means plan early and, and be, be well-versed in, in the uh, sort of preparedness mindset of what are you going to do when this happens. And then understand what what's a likely vulnerability where you live. Are you uh, at risk of flooding at your home and property or are you at risk of of uh, heavy snows and power line damage and ice storms and those are the kinds of part of that planning is plan for w what most likely is going to hit you most time it's not going to be that much different in what you prepare in your emergency kit uh, but it'll also give you some indication of what likelihood of duration you need to be prepared for yeah, and you know, one of the reasons why I think we've also gone to telling people to prepare for two weeks is Quite often, there's the neighbor that isn't prepared, and right. the neighbor has a three-year-old toddler and is a single mom, and are you going to turn that single mom with a three-year-old toddler away from your food and water stores uh, during that three-day event or something? So suddenly, your, your, your three days have to be divided amongst two more people, and suddenly, you're down to a day and a half You know, if you're a two-person household. And if your 80-year-old neighbor that didn't prepare also shows up and is asking for help, uh, you know, it, that that's you know, that two-week supply suddenly becomes your three-day supply. So right. you know, that's you know, they're always the people that either can't afford to, don't have the storage, you know, or just are are you know, don't prepare. Period. Um, that you know, you're going to end up helping, you know those people, if you're the one that's, that's done the preparation, has the two weeks, uh, you know, worth of food, has an alternate heat source in your house, so, you know, if you know, that three-year-old doesn't end up 
you know, freezing to death in the middle of winter. Because <laughs> we all know it took eight days for some people to get power back in the city of Eugene after that last ice storm. Right. Yeah. You know, so that that's a long time to be without power. And one of the things, you know, you know, you can see with the hurricanes down in Florida and Puerto Rico is how important power is to simple things like keeping elderly people cool and keeping oxygen generators going and how, how that so quickly impacted the elderly. Right. Yeah, that, so yeah, rely but, heavily on frozen foods as part of our food supplies. And if you're going to be out of power for a lot of days, you'll lose all of that food. So you have to have that as a supplement to your primary food stores, which should be dry goods and canned goods that have a very, very long-term shelf life. Definitely. So it's definitely something that people need to think through and prepare for. And it's probably right. more likely to be an emergency that they actually take part of sometime in their life versus some active shooter event like Las Vegas or, um, you know, Columbine, uh, you know, and other other active shooter incidents across the country. It, that That's a small percentage of the population, even though Vegas was such a large crowd, um, that's still not anything compared to, say, the people of Houston or the people of New Orleans or the people of South Florida, uh, you know, recently uh, that have had to endure a large uh, scale. Or just think about how many people in Eugene were impacted by that ice storm. Kind of right. dwarfs the number of people that were actually impacted by the actual event in Las Vegas. Um, so, Really, the thing to prepare for personally, and will help in other things, is that that three-day to two-week natural disaster where you're going to be cut off from the world. You know, where you're not going to have electricity at your house. You may not have water. Uh, in my case, you know, out here in the country, most of us need electricity to pump our water out of a well. So, right. If you don't, if you don't have some kind of backup water supply. Uh, and you're going eight days without water, without electricity. You're you're in a whole lot of trouble. So yep. it's really an important thing to think about. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. So I I appreciate all the information uh, you guys have available to prepare for uh, emergencies. Going to switch topics here in a second, but I want to yeah. remind people if they want to talk to Sheriff Fire and Trap, who is my guest here on the Bose Nose Show, they can call six four six. Seven two one nine eight eight seven, and just press one if you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven. So, Byron, I also you know kind of hinted that I might ask you about these new distracted driving laws, the hands-free law, whatever you want to call it, that went into place over the weekend. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about what now I can't do because I've got a board that has this uh, the Microsoft sync system in it. So I don't really touch my phone, but I've got controls on my steering column to uh, answer my phone or to make calls by voice command. Am I okay with that system? Yeah. So it really, it, it doesn't address any factory installed systems in your car. So if, if you have, and they have had factory installed systems that have telephones incorporated in cars now for a number of years. So none of it changes that. It really addresses the, uh, uh, what do they call it, the mobile electronic device. And that's in the new law that means any device that's capable of texting, uh, voice communication like a telephone, entertainment, which is music, so your iPods, your all of your song storage, uh, if you have that as your source of music in your car, movies, all the stuff that you know we watch on our iPhones or iPads or whatever, uh, navigation systems, whether it's part of your phone or it's a, a standalone uh, Garmin nav that you stick to your windshield and uh, program in the address and say, take me there. Uh, or anything that accesses the internet or email. So essentially they've they've locked down and said none of those can be held in your hand or used for any purpose uh while the car while you are driving. 
and uh, driving is now defined as not only operating a motor vehicle on the highway while you're driving down the road and the car is moving, which we think of driving, but it also means while the wheels are not turning and your foot's on the brake and you're temporarily stopped uh, and stationary because of traffic or for uh, traffic stop, uh, traffic signal or other momentary delays, you can't, while you're stopped at a red light, quick pick up your phone and catch up on your text. You have to pull over off the road, put the car in park, and then you can access your device. So the simple uh, message to it is the exceptions are if you're over the age of 18, you can use or uh, use the services of a mobile device if it's a one-touch access. So if you don't have to hold it in your hand to do it, so if you have a, a holder that clips your phone clips in in your center console or on your dash and a phone rings and you have a one-touch or a one-swipe to answer the phone on, on uh, speakerphone and one-touch or one-swipe to deactivate the phone when you hang up. Uh, you can't scroll through your music. You can't scroll through your texts. And so it's, it's very, very limited. The simplest way to, to address this is to try to convince all of ourselves and our family members that when you get in a car, take your phone off ring and off vibrate so you can't see it or hear it, and put it stowed away in a purse or in your briefcase or in your center console. And when you get to where you're going, take your phone out, turn it on, and see who wants to talk to you and call them then. Uh, there's very, very few times that there's going to be something so urgent that you can't wait that little bit of time. Or hand your phone to a passenger in your vehicle and say, hey, if somebody texts me, tell me what they're texting or but hold this and don't let me hold it. And if there's some phone call that comes in, answer it for me and tell them I'm driving, I can't talk. So there's all kinds of ways to do it. I just updated my iPhone with the new, the latest uh, software upgrade. And it now has a, an option in there where you can have it automatically notify people. Uh, it won't buzz or indicate to me that I have a message coming in. But if you text me, it texts you back with a text response that says, I'm driving right now, I'll get to you later. Or if the phone rings, it doesn't let me know, and it, it notifies people that this this uh, phone is in motion, it's being, uh, it's, its owner is driving, we can't talk. And uh, so we're making it easier technology-wise, not we, technology companies are making it easy for us to lose some of our excuses, and uh, really it's just, find a way to get past our addiction to having and holding our phones and get back to focusing on driving and focusing on what's happening in the car that doesn't involve your phone. My wife's car has GPS built into it for, for driving directions and all that stuff. Mine That's too, not yeah. A yeah. And also, so can you still use those sort of devices if you set them up before, you know, while you're in park, get them all set, mm -hmm. hit go, and and just listen to the directions as you go, or is it just right. you can't have a GPS device? No, you can you have, have it on. And this, uh, yeah, but again, this this doesn't this specifically excludes factory installed equipment on an automobile. So my wife's car does the same has the same thing you just mentioned. She has a built-in uh, navigation system that's on a little six-inch screen on her dash. And But because it's a factory-installed device, while we're driving, even if I'm in the passenger seat and I want to change the navigation, I can't. Once the car's in motion, it locks out control. And all you can do is once you've set it up and, sit and hit navigate, you can only watch it until you stop the car, and then you could adjust and change the settings on it and change the address you want to go to and change your route. So unlike, I don't have... Uh, that modern of a car, the one I drive. And so I have a Garmin uh, navigation device that sticks on the dash, and I put the address in before I start driving and, and hit go. I can manipulate that at 65 miles an hour on on I-5 or any other street downtown, and and there's no controls because of motion. So most of the car manufacturers on the more the later model cars out there have built-in safety features where you have to set them up before you go and and have the navigation 
up and running and you can't manipulate it during uh, during your trip or unless you stop the car so there that's part of the difference there but the if it's if it's not a factory installed equipment and it's like I have it's a little portable device it's not my cell phone although I have navigation on my cell phone that I've used too but I actually have a separate device that all it does is navigate and uh, I can't by the new law, I can't change or adjust or alter my route. Uh, same thing with that device. It's one touch to turn it on, and it's one touch to turn it off. And uh, so I can stop the navigation by turning it off in without stopping my car, but I can't reprogram a new address. Yeah. So that brings up another question for me. There's a lot of... Um, Commercial truck drivers uh, and even um, you know, even messenger services that use radios, and they usually right. and they don't have you know they usually have a handheld mic you know that you key on and off uh, to communicate with you know whoever's dispatching them. And in particular, I know that log truck drivers use CBs because there's lots of places out in the woods where you can't get a cell signal. Uh, once you get off-road and on those logging roads, and, you, and they, there's a certain CB channel they'll use on this landing to make sure that they're not going to run, you know, head-on into a truck coming down the hill because a lot of those roads are one-directional traffic. How does the, the, the law deal with some of those um, commercial applications and, and CB or even uh, proprietary uh, radio systems and the ability to use a handheld mic? Right. The uh, there's no change in the new law amending the existing statute. So this we have had a law for some time. It was it's 811.507 under Oregon Revised Statutes, and I don't remember when that came into being the original uh, cell phone law. Uh, and in the original law, it had language that exempted uh, two-way radio, and so the current the new law, the the amendment that has these additional restrictions on it that we're now uh, trying to understand, uh, it it preserved those. So it it has exemptions for people using two-way radios, CB users, any person over the age of 18 uh, can use these devices. But CB uh, radios uh, for log truck drivers, school bus drivers, utility truck drivers, uh, all all of those in the scope of employment. Uh, which would include other two-way radio systems, and it has the exceptions for ambulance and emergency vehicle operators and ham operators over the age of 18. So the key there is really what this law is trying to say is if you're under 18, you shouldn't be doing anything but driving, period. You shouldn't have any devices, radios, or other things going that's not that didn't come with your car from the dealership. And if you're over 18, there are some exceptions to accommodate business and uh, emergency services and, and those kinds of things. So the simple two-way radio systems that are used for business in, in those purposes are still preserved as exceptions to this rule. So I, I've done a ride-along in, in a police car. Uh, just happened to be with my brother-in-law, Dover uh, City Policeman in, in Delaware. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of of uh, devices in a, in, <laughs> available to the driver of a police vehicle. There are a lot of things happening in that car. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, they say that no brain can really truly multitask, that every brain, regardless of how good you think you are, every brain can only really focus on one function at a time. And and so it is an ongoing concern, and, and we have policies that try to manage as much as possible uh, the, uh, the obvious risks. But in, and it's not limited to police cars, uh, it's in fire trucks and ambulances, uh, certainly in police cars today. They have a, a computer with a keyboard and a computer screen that's lit up in the center of the car there, in the center of the dash that uh, the uh, deputy receives his call information on and uh, can update the call by adding details in. We can write reports on our computers. There's a whole, it's a fully functioning uh, 
a computer system that ties us into our what they call CAD computer aided dispatch. And in addition to that, computer is kind of some of the newer technology. But there's clearly cell phones in the cars. Uh, we issue all of our staff cell phones as part of our communication system. Uh, we don't have just one radio for the sheriff's office channels. We have a sheriff's office channel radio that has multi-agency radio uh, frequencies in it. We also have a radio, a second radio that uh, has channels that don't com uh, aren't compatible with our one radio. So that has OSP and fire service and other agencies in and out of Lane County. Those radios are on and talking simultaneously. And, and uh, in an ambulance or in a fire truck, you're going to find the same thing. And so it's it's complicated, and it takes some time to uh, understand how to manage those devices when you're in the car and you're operating it. And uh, we have policies that you're not to read your computer screen and, and to do any computer updating while driving. Uh, and we have policies that say that you're supposed to we issue hands-free devices for our cars. I think some of our newer cars are now coming with, like you're talking about, the, the you can pair your device to your car, and so you have a hands-free built-in factory system to try to get the, the deputies as hands-free as possible. Um, but this is you know, part of our emerging world of technology where things get much more complex. And you know, when uh, almost 30 years ago when I started, we had uh, those little round, what they called the bubble gum lights on top. I didn't actually drive a police car like that uh, when I first started, but we still had some in service that other deputies were driving. And uh, I had one radio and a CB in the police car that I started driving. And uh, so it's come a long way. And it's it's a different environment to uh, be there. My wife and other people ride along with me, and I'll get back in my car and I'll find, well, and I'll have the AM, FM radio playing in my favorite radio station because you have to have music. And uh, I get back in the car, and all of a sudden things sound, something's not right. And I realize my AM, FM radio's turned off. And uh, my other radios are turned down, and I asked my wife, what, what, what were you doing? She said, I couldn't think. I couldn't hear. I couldn't. So she was like, kind of an overload and kind of had to sort of go through and turn things down so she could function just as a passenger. So it's uh, it definitely takes some, some experience to get yourself acclimatized to be able to manage through some of that. And it's it's a challenge. I will say I have yet to ever hear of uh, of accident involving a law enforcement officer where they were distracted by their radio or computer. Uh, that that has not made my radar screen ever. So they've managed yeah, to I do distraction. Yeah, I can't give an example that it comes to my head. I know we've had a couple of you know minor incidents, that, but it's something that we put a pretty heavy focus on and we train and we have policies to address it as do all other law enforcement so it is something you don't see uh, there's a, a heavy focus on driver training which involves uh, our driver training programs involve the policy review of you're, you're here to drive this car and if your lights and siren and you're you're enhancing your risk automatically you've got to put the electronics out of your vision and and just drive so it, there is a focus on that. I think law enforcement has taken a pretty good approach to it uh, over the years as we've slowly added these distractions to our cars. Uh, but it, we have to actively management, manage it, and that's really where the public is now is, is we're passing laws. The legislature is passing laws to tighten up and force us to actively management at, manage these issues at risk of heavy penalty to include up to uh, six months in jail if you have multiple penalties in too short of a time. One last question on this subject. I, I, and I, I want to remind people, we've got about five minutes left in the show. If they want to call in and ask the sheriff any question, it's 646-721-9887. Um, does a uh, cell phone that has a Bluetooth earpiece where you can kind of do one you know one touch on the on the earpiece to answer and one touch to to uh use you know Siri or whatever through them to voice control dial out is that considered a uh, okay as long as you're not picking up the actual cell phone and pressing the button more than once right yeah cuz it has it has one touch or one swipe to activate and one touch or one swipe to deactivate would fall into that but uh 
ability to operate uh, or to activate. Uh, activate or deactivate is the terms used in the in the statute. Yeah. And so, if somebody pulls over to the side of the road because they got an incoming call or or they want to make a call, um, they just have to have their vehicle in park, and they're okay to pick up a hand handheld device and utilize it. In park, stopped and parked in not. In, in a in a place that you're allowed to stop and park, so you can't you can't just put your car and park at a red light and say, "Hey, I was in park," because you can't legally park there. You know, if you're in the middle of the road, yeah. stopped at a red light or stopped at a stop sign, you can't you can't put it in park and text real quick or or answer a call real quick and then put it back in drive and and hit the gas when it goes green. Um, so you have to so pull out of the traveled roadway and into a safe spot. You can park alongside the highway, pull over where it's safe and and legal to stop on the side of a roadway. And put the vehicle in park, and and make your phone calls or or receive or text or whatever. So yeah, it has to be off the road and and stopped and parked. So a lot of the interstates are posted emergency stopping only. But right. Would, so would those places not be a legal place where you could pull over and, and not unless you can convince the trooper it was an emergency that you had to take that text or phone call, but you're probably best to uh, wait till you get to the next rest stop, pull over, get out, stretch your feet, stretch your legs, and make your phone calls and get yourself refreshed and then head back down the road. So that's what those the rest areas are for, and I would that's what I would recommend. I think it'd be it'd be a hard pressed argument to convince a trooper that that was an emergency stop to pick up a phone. Yeah, so that that's the real key is that got to be a legal place for you to stop your car. And, right. And that's and people must be aware that a lot of interstates are posted emergency stopping only, so that does not really count to pull off on a shoulder in that situation unless, yeah, like you said, convince somebody that it's a true emergency, you had to use your phone, <laughs> which there right. could be. I mean, your past could be there having could be. a heart attack or something. Yeah. There could um, be, yeah. But there, there are situations where I think you could convince the, the officer or the court of law that it was an emergency. So and it'll be your about burden. If any of the exceptions to the rule it will be the burden of the end of the, if you end up being cited, you'll have to prove that you fall into an exception. Uh, so you, you know, it, it'll potentially be up to you to defend yourself using an existing exception to statute. So it's it's easier just to not do it. So we've got about yeah. two minutes left, Byron. Anything you want to address today on the Bozo Show? Wow. Uh, you know, I, I don't have anything off the top of my head. I'm uh, uh, happy we're, we kind of got through the, the summer activity. We got through the fire season. Uh, I, I guess I would like to say, you know, the, thanks to the community for their patience and support as we work through the the fires not just here in Lane County but across the state of Oregon. I know that was a big impact this summer and kind of unique in some of the the heavy smoke issues we dealt with. But continuing to enjoy a, a good a good relationship with our community and good community support, and uh, you know thank the community for that. Yeah, and I have to say I heard some really good reports back from the uh, Mackenzie Bridge area about how you guys handled the evacuation notices and how you added some extra patrols up there so people could feel safe if they did have to leave their homes, that they weren't going to get burglarized because everyone knew that that area was being evacuated. It was kind of like right. a, a, a red flag in front of some of the bad guys. There are going to be some empty homes here. So um, right. that was really a great piece of work up there. Well, thank you. It, it worked out well. We couldn't guarantee anybody's personal property safety by sending extra patrols up there, but we we uh, we were able to at least try to prevent some victimization that might have occurred otherwise. Yeah, and advertising to have the extra patrols up there was probably enough to stop some of that victimization. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think it worked well. All right, Byron. I really appreciate Hopefully you'll come back soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Well, that was Byron Trapp, our sheriff of Lane County, and you've been listening to the Bose Nose Show. And we'll be back next week here at four o'clock on Wednesday. And remember, like us on Facebook, and uh, you can listen to the shows anytime by going to uh, Blog Talk Radio. Just 
Google KRBN Internet Radio and you'll find us. Thank you for listening and have a great week.